All right, I hope you have your Bibles with you. We're going to be studying Nehemiah. We are talking about Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And last week we began the book of Nehemiah, covered chapter 1 and most of chapter 2. And tonight we're going to continue that, getting through the end of chapter 3. Moving swiftly through this, but hopefully this is a way that you haven't studied these post-exilic books before, all three of them together. You get a, a different sense of what they're about overall. And the theme, of course, that we're working on is the idea of restoration. So we saw Zerubbabel restoring worship through the building of the temple. We saw Ezra restoring the law. Now we're with Nehemiah, and he's restoring the city of Jerusalem. Last week we started with a ruined city. Uh, Nehemiah learned from a friend who had come from Jerusalem the sad state of the city. The gates were broken down. The walls had left them defenseless. And uh, so it was a ruined city. This week we're talking about an envisioned city. That should say envisioned, but I've got last week's slide up there. Hopefully I didn't put the entire slideshow from last week. No, okay, that's, that's the right thing. So this week we're talking about an envisioned city. Um, if you'll review last week, he went to King Artaxerxes as cupbearer. And at great risk to himself, he requested permission to go back to Jerusalem and lead the rebuilding of the walls. And Artaxerxes allowed him to do this. Not only that, but he gave him uh, supplies and provisions to make the trip. And so here's a map that shows the journey that Nehemiah took. It was even longer than Ezra. So if you recall, when we talked about Ezra's journey, I think from Ezra chapter 7, it took four months from, for Ezra to get from Babylon, if you can see that on the map, over to Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah was in Persia. Babylon was a province of Persia, of the Persian Empire, but Nehemiah was in the capital of Persia, this city named Susa, and uh, he had to cross over the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. And if it took Ezra four months to get there, it took Nehemiah a lot longer than that. So you have to really want to go somewhere to travel the way that they traveled in those days and to put your life at risk the way they did and to be on the road for such a long period of time. So he makes the trip over. And when he finally arrived, Nehemiah had had a lot of time to think about what he wanted to do. And he was a leader that was successful because of his vision for the city of Jerusalem. Can't stress how important it is, especially in the Lord's church, for God's leaders to have vision. We all ought to have vision. There's an important verse of the Bible that talks about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. What does that mean? That means you see more than what's just around you. You see more than what your eyes are telling you. You see the spiritual world. You see God. You see a bright future. That's the kind of leadership that has to 
exist for God's people to succeed. You know, for Nehemiah, he saw a city with a fortified wall, with gates that could be locked and keep the enemy out. He saw a strong city, a proud people. Here at Asheville Road, do we see a church that's active in evangelism and in mission work and benevolence, a church that holds one another up, strengthens one another, encourages one another, looks out for the weak? Uh, do we see a church of people helping one another get to heaven? What is our vision for this church? What was Nehemiah's vision? If you're going to be a good leader, you have to have vision. But it's not enough just to have vision. Nehemiah also shows us that you have to have the vision and you have to be able to put that vision in the hearts of your people. There have been a lot of people who tried to lead because they had a vision, but they failed because of their inability to communicate the vision to their people. And by communicate, I don't just mean spell out what's on your heart and speak what's on your heart. That's hard enough. But you have to do that and also be so persuasive that you inspire your people to follow you. That takes character, that takes example, it takes sacrifice, it takes uh, intelligence, communication skills. And, and Nehemiah had all of this. This is why people looked to him as, as a great leader. He could communicate it, he could plant his vision in the hearts of the people who followed him. And so we're going to look at this, how he transferred the vision, how he was able to motivate the people by noticing five things that he did. And again, like I said last week, this is great for leadership, but it also tells us the story of the people of God. So here's number one. The first thing, he defined the problem truthfully, but optimistically. The first words out of his mouth when he gathered the people together probably made their hearts sink. Look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse, verse 17. They're all gathered together after he surveyed the city. And here's what he says. You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. You know, they had seen it, but you know how it is to see a problem and be able to just put it in the back of your head. Ignore it. Concentrate on something else. Hope that it'll just go away. Nehemiah, he was realistic. He saw what was going on, confirmed the report that he had heard when he was in Persia. This is, this is bad. We are in trouble. He used the first few days of his stay in Jerusalem to prepare for this moment. Uh, if you back up a little bit, you can see what he did. Verse 12 of chapter 2. He arose in the night, a few men with me. He said, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, uh, went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. 
And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. He wanted an independent inspection of the city because he wanted to look at this truthfully. He didn't want to be affected by excuses or blame or compromise. He wanted to see for himself. And then he communicated that bluntly to the people. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. But when he communicated the problem, he didn't just leave them with a negative. Finish reading what he said in verse 17. The next thing he said is, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Poor leaders know how to identify the problems. And then they just complain about the problems and then just drop them in the people's laps and walk away. We've seen that. We've seen it at work. We've seen it in churches. We've seen it everywhere. Poor leaders don't come up with solutions. They just talk about the problems. They blame. It's never their fault. It's somebody else's fault. They don't take responsibility. But a good leader has a solution. And Nehemiah's solution is, we're going to build these walls. I've come from Persia with the supplies. You are the manpower. Together, we can do this. So don't be afraid of the truth. You know, uh, it's like when you have a little symptom and you're afraid, if I go to the doctor, I may find out that I'm sick. Well, you're sick whether you go to the doctor or not, right? You might as well go find out what it is. You know, uh, if, if there's a problem in, in our family, it's not just going to go away on its own. You need to find a way to envision things getting better and communicate that to the family and have a plan for how to solve the problem. Same with churches. Look at the problems. Be honest about them. But don't lose your mind over it. Know that God is with you and look for the solution in His Word. Have faith and go forward with a vision. This is what Nehemiah did. So that's the first thing. Number two, we also see in chapter 2 that he examined his motives and the motives of the people. In other words, he not only communicated the vision, but he communicated why they needed to do what he was proposing. People need to have reasons for doing things. It's got to be better than, well, we just, that's what we've always done. Why, why should we build walls around Jerusalem? Well, that's what cities do. Why do we have to build these back up? We've been doing fine for the last hundred years. Well, you know, I just think it's a good idea. No. A leader has to communicate reasons, motives. And he presents three for rebuilding the walls. Reason number one, God favored the task. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. First and foremost, this is God's will. This is what we do when we find in the Bible the, the commission we've been given and the work we've been given to do. And we quote the Bible. This is exactly what Nehemiah is doing. This is God's will. This is what God wants us to do. But also he gave them another motive. He said, number two, 
King Artaxerxes had given his approval. Verse 18, I told them of the words that the king had spoken to me. So now God's behind it. The government's behind it. This is um, an official request from the king. It needs to be done. And then he motivated them thirdly in verse 17 with the idea that they had lost the respect of their neighbors. When he encouraged them to build the wall, did you notice that he said that we may no longer suffer derision? Uh, Esther is going to come in handy on this part whenever we get to her story. She restores, without visiting Jerusalem, she restores the honor of the Jewish people. And here you see a glimpse into the disrespect that they had received for being a conquered city and, having, and living in a place that's in rubble. Jerusalem lies in ruins, Nehemiah said. So we have to have our reasons if we're going to work. And if we don't, we'll fail. I like this quote from Bob Nelson. You get the best effort from others, not by lighting a fire beneath them, but by building a fire within. It took me a long time to learn that. I'm still learning it. I remember... Um, the first summer I was a youth minister, I wasn't much older than the kids in my youth group, and I was told by somebody that you better go in there and show them who's boss. So I was going in class, and I demanded complete silence, sit up straight, look at me, don't talk to one another. If anybody said anything to somebody, I'd throw them out of the room immediately. Go, go sit by your parents. Come out here in the hall. I was just like Mr. Disciplinarian, and they hated me. You know, they didn't want to do anything that, that I said to do. And I eventually started learning that it's not about lighting a fire under them and burning the seat of their pants. It's about building a fire within them, inspiring them. And how do you do that? You give them reasons to do what they need to do. I think this is really important for leaders to do just to make application for the contribution. Now, Christians, we ought to be giving on the first day of every week in worship to our God. But here's how it works. God, it's God's money when the church leaders put it to work for the Lord's work. And I think it's fully appropriate for elders, for preachers, for deacons, leaders to remind the church from time to time what's being done with the money. Because it's... It can so easily, something we do every week can easily become something that we just do out of habit. Well, here's my, here's my check this week. And you know, what really fires people up is to know what has been done in the name of the Lord. There's a brand new book back there of pictures of wells that this church funded in third world countries. A Sunday through the Walk for Water effort with area churches, we already raised over $37,000. And I'm sure that number will climb. And uh, that, that's a great motivator to go back there and thumb through that book and to see the smiles on the faces of the people who can get fresh water, who can work, who can grow gardens, whose children are not sick anymore, and to see the Lord getting the glory for that. That's just a wonderful thing. So... We need to keep these things before ourselves all the time, reminding ourselves why we're doing the things we're doing. 
Why do we come to church to worship? We're not here for each other. We're here for God. He's in the audience, right? We have to remember that. We have to remember why we have a youth program. 80% of Christians are baptized before they reach the age of 20. That's why we're inviting Eli to come down and work with us. Because we know that most people, if you don't catch them before they turn 20, they don't, they don't come to the Lord. And it's things like that. We need to constantly remind ourselves. And I could go on and on and on with things that we just slip into hab habitually and forget the reasons behind them. Good leaders always keep the reasons out in the forefront. And nobody has better reasons to do what they do than the church. Here's the third thing we see him doing. He was dedicated to a cooperative effort. Cooperation was why he was communicating. He wasn't one of these leaders that said, well, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. That's a bad leader. It might be a very talented person, but it's a bad leader. A good leader will delegate. He'll get people involved. He's a uniter. He believes in cooperative effort because he knows that he can't do everything by himself. And Nehemiah never intended to do everything himself. He was going to get everybody involved so that they would take ownership. Pride often gets in the way of the progress, and proud leaders make the work about themselves. And if they're able to do anything, the minute they're gone, and all of us go at some point or another, everything just falls apart. The work should never be built just on one person. It's got to be about something bigger than that person. There are three phrases in the text that indicate his desire to encourage a cooperative effort. First of all, look at the use of the plural pronouns in Nehemiah 2, 17 and 18. We read this a moment ago, but we didn't emphasize the words us and we. Look how many times he uses this language. I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king has spoken to me. It's all about us and we. They said, let us rise up and build. Using those plural pronouns, we talked last week about his prayer. Now, he had been in Persia and he had not committed all the sins that he was identifying with in his prayer of confession that's recorded in chapter 1. But he was a leader and he knew that we needed to be in this together, for better or worse. So you see that. That's the first example. The second example is in chapter 3. And chapter 3 is one of those chapters that you might cheat on as you're reading through the Bible in a year. You think, well, it's just a bunch of names. Not much to gather there. But there is something very important and it's the phrase, next to him. Look at chapter 3, verses 2 and following. You'll see these names and this repetition of this phrase, next to him. Verse 2, next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zachur the son of Emery built. And then you go on down to verse 4, and next to them Merimoth the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz repaired, and next to them Meshulam the son of Berechiah, and so on. I'm not going to try to read all those names, but I can read the phrase next to him. If you got a red pen out and underlined that phrase every time it occurred, 
in chapter 3, verses 2 through 12, you, could, you can just see the cooperation come off the pages. It's not just a lone wolf out there hammering away at a wall. They're, they're side by side. You can just picture it next to him, next to him, next to him. And I guess because he didn't want to sound redundant, he changes phrases a little bit after verse 12. And in chapter 3, verses 16 through 31, there's a new phrase. After him. Now look at verse 16. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth Zur, repaired. Verse 17, after him, the Levites repaired. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kariah, repaired for the district. Uh, after him, their brothers repaired, and so on. So now it's after him, after him, after him. So it's just a language that shows the cooperative effort on that wall that allowed them to do such a good work in such a record time. We need the same kind of unity in the church. I think about Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the church when it's working properly, a cooperative effort. Now to do that, you've got to recognize that we don't all have the same talents and abilities. We're like the body that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He does it in Romans 12 too. And some of us are the hands, some of us are the feet. Uh, we can't be worried about getting the glory, getting recognition. There are going to be times where people unintentionally forget to thank us for our hard work. But if we are involved and we're, our mind is on the vision that Christ set before us, if we're remembering why we're doing things, we're not going to worry about getting the credit or what somebody else isn't doing. We're going to be excited to be a part of something great. And that's what Nehemiah instilled in his people. Next, what else did he do? He resolved to take action. He, you know, he has been in neutral for a long time, it seems. Actually, he's been planning and communicating, but it took him four months to talk to the king. It probably took him five months to get over there. He starts inspecting the walls. He's been thinking about this for close to a year. Now he's ready to take action. Um, verse 18, they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. These are just regular people. They're not particularly bright, talented, or strong. Whatever they had, though, it was enough because God was with them. So what did they have that allowed them to take action on this building project? I mean, these are people who had been refugees for a long time and their children. Uh, how were these people able to do such a, an amazing project under the guidance of a cupbearer? You know, Nehemiah is not a contractor. He's not a builder. He's a cupbearer. So what, what did they have? What is needed to take action as big as this? First of all, you've got to have desire. Before Nehemiah communicated the vision, the people were indifferent about the walls of the city. They knew the problem. I mean, the people who lived there must have seen the city in ruins, the gates burned. Uh, it had been that way since, this is 444 B.C., the city was destroyed in, in 586 B.C., so for more than 100 years it had been that way. Uh, they returned in 536, so a little under 100 years, they've been 
sitting in this squalor. They were indifferent about it. But Nehemiah came in and he put desire in their hearts. And they, he brought them up out of that apathy. The second thing that they needed to take action was a plan. Not just action. Busyness for activity's sake results in confusion. But a plan puts our energies, focuses our energies into actually accomplishing something. I don't know if you've ever had one of those hourly wage jobs where you have those days where you just needed to look busy. I remember working under a guy one time at a golf course, and I said, I finished this, I finished that. Uh, I don't get off till this time. What do I do? And he said, just look busy. You know that, right? Look busy. That's not, I'd rather work than look busy, but uh, that's not having a plan. Nehemiah put a plan out in front of them. Not merely look busy, not activity for activity's sake. Let's accomplish this in record time. The third thing that they had, which was needed for action, for work, is faith in God. God doesn't want us to commit to what we can do. He asks us to commit to what He can do. Let me repeat that. God doesn't want us to commit to what we are capable of. He is asking us to commit to what He can do through us. And that's a lot bigger than what your limitations allow. So it takes faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith, Paul says, is sin. Romans 14, 23. And we started with this. We walk by faith, not by sight. Fourth, not just faith in God. We've got to have faith in one another. It's not easy to work with others sometimes. Uh, you know, you bring other people in, and what do they bring with them? They bring their own ideas about how things should be done. And that slows the process down, and you've got to listen, and you've got to talk about it, and arrive at some consensus. And It's frustrating sometimes. It's hard. But we've got to have faith in one another. God wants us to do this work together, because He knows that's best. God's people are joined by love. And I think about that definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember verse 7 where it says, Love believes all things. The object of love is others. So it means that if you love another person, you believe in that person. You believe there's good in that person, talent in that person. Sometimes you got to look for it. you got to find the right spot for them. But you got to have faith in others as well. If, if you're going to work together. So those four things are found in Jerusalem when Nehemiah gets there. Desire, a plan of action, faith in God and faith in one another. And that's how they were able to get to work. Here's the last part. The last thing that he did is he disregarded the ridicule. Ridicule. Now, if we ever expect to do something great without running into critics, then we're just being naive. Anytime you change things, anytime you make progress, anytime you grow, somebody is going to speak up out of jealousy, maybe, out of their own discomfort. And so just expect it. I think it's true if you're, if, you're smooth, if you're sailing smoothly 
along and nobody's ever upset and everything's just going peachy and you never get criticized, you're probably not trying to do anything new. You're probably not trying to grow. You're trying, probably not pushing hard enough. Uh, people get uncomfortable when you ask them to do more for God. And, and there's no limit, right? There's no ceiling to what God has asked us to do. Well, things have been about the same for over a hundred years in this area. And there were territories around Israel who were enjoying not having to deal with the Jews. Now they've moved down there and built a temple, but still they knew if they got out of line, they could destroy them pretty quickly because there are no walls on the city. Now here comes this guy from Persia. Now this is dangerous. He's trying to rebuild the city walls. So we're introduced to these three characters that kind of jump off the page at us in chapter 2, verse 19. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. Just very interesting designations here. Really quickly, something about each one. Sanballat the Horonite was probably the governor of the Samaritans. So picture Jerusalem. North of there is the old territory of the northern kingdom of Israel, which had been destroyed centuries before by the Assyrians and resettled. And there's like a hybrid race of people there. These are the ancestors of the Samaritans in Jesus' day. So that's probably who Samballat was, probably ruled the area of Samaria. Tobiah the Ammonite servant, there's a biblical record that says his family continued to be a powerful force in Ammon into the 3rd century B.C. So his family had been ruling in Ammon for, for a while. Geshem the Arab was a man who ruled with his son over a league of Arabian tribes and taken control of Moab and Edom. Uh, in the 5th century B.C. The important thing to remember is all of these men were ruling areas very close to Jerusalem. North, particularly in the north, of course you have the, the Mediterranean Sea on the west, you have Egypt down south and desert, but on the north and the east you have these, these men. And uh, they're making accusations, very serious accusations. Look at verse 19. What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, as is the case with many accusations, these were lies. They're not, not a word of truth. We know the story. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, one of the most trusted servants uh, of the king. His response is great, verse 20. And you'll see more of this. If you like this kind of thing, uh, get ready, there's going to be more. These three enemies are going to pop back up again, and Nehemiah deals with them well every single time. But in verse 20, he says, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So he appeals to the higher power. He states the facts. Then he reaffirmed his position, we will arise and build. He completely disregarded him. Now, if there's some constructive criticism, of course we should listen to it. Because we can, we can use input and we can use counsel. But this kind of thing, unfair, salacious lies, you don't have to pay any attention to that. Just expect that it will come when you try to do something great. People will criticize, people will scoff, people will mock. 
But when it's not helpful, you don't have to listen to it. Nehemiah handled it very well. It's hard to do that sometimes, but um, he did it. And because of these leadership skills and principally the vision that he had, chapter 6, verse 15 tells us they finished these walls in 52 days. I know I've said that before, but it's just an amazing accomplishment. You can see what God can do through people who are cooperating with one another and who are unified in their heart and have their faith in the right place. Anybody want to make any comments before we close? Anything that you noticed? Any questions you might have? All right, if not, we will be dismissed. Thank you so much.